For the past week or so, news coverage in the United States has been largely dominated by the events surrounding the death of Jordan Neely. On the afternoon of May 1st, 2023, the 30-year-old Neely was choked to death on a New York City subway train in Lower Manhattan by 24-year-old Daniel Penny. Neely, a black man originally from Bayonne, New Jersey, had reportedly made a name for himself as a Michael Jackson impersonator throughout the city, but also struggled with mental health issues such as schizophrenia and post-traumatic stress disorder, and he was homeless at the time of his death. According to eyewitnesses, Neely shouted at passengers on the subway and asked them to give him food and water, declaring that he was not afraid of going to prison or dying, before taking off his jacket and throwing it on the ground. Some witnesses claimed that Neely had thrown garbage at riders, but this was disputed by others. It was at this point that Penny, a white former U.S. Marine turned bartender from Long Island, put Neely in a chokehold while two other men restrained Neely's limbs. Neely was in a chokehold for an unclear amount of time, somewhere in the neighborhood of 5 to 10 minutes, but by the time medical personnel arrived to resuscitate Neely, he was dead. Penny, who told police he intended to restrain Neely but not kill him, has not been charged in connection with Neely's death, and a grand jury will likely determine whether or not to charge him this coming week. Reactions to Neely's death varied. New York City Mayor Eric Adams described the killing as tragic, while emphasizing that much was still unknown about the event and that it should be more thoroughly investigated. Many progressives, most notably New York Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, condemned Adams' response, describing the killing as a racially motivated murder and advocating for Penny's arrest. Mass protests in the city over the past few days have echoed this belief. Most conservatives, meanwhile, have called the killing an act of self-defense, with many defenders of Penny being quick to point out that Neely had previously been arrested over 40 times by the NYPD. And unlike in many similar cases of killings believed to be race-related, the idea of the killing being self-defense doesn't seem to be unique to the political right in this case. A major outlier in the politics of New York City is the issue of crime. Despite the overwhelming tendency of the American political left to support police and justice reform, almost 80% of New York City residents believe that the city's government is taking too soft a stance against crime, according to a 2022 poll. There is perhaps no major city in the United States with such a politically progressive character that has so many people who support more tough-on-crime measures. It was arguably the largest issue that propelled Eric Adams, a former NYPD captain who ran on a law and order platform, to victory in the 2021 mayoral election. Under the mayorship of Adams' predecessor, Bill de Blasio, crime in New York City increased dramatically, particularly in the form of gun violence, which hit a record high in June of 2020. Of course, Crime during the de Blasio administration paled in comparison to that of a previous era, one with which many older New Yorkers are very familiar. In the 1980s, under the mayorship of Ed Koch, New York City's crime rate exploded with the advent of the crack epidemic. 
Crime in the city rose until 1990 when it began to decline under the mayorship of David Dinkins. Crime decreased dramatically under the mayorship of Rudy Giuliani before bottoming out in the mid-2000s under Michael Bloomberg. It is clear that many older New Yorkers who lived through the 1980s crime spike fear a resurgence of violent and petty crime. In 1984, one man became a hero to some New Yorkers for seemingly standing up against subway crime. To others, however, he became a symbol of racism and excessive use of force. I'm going to tell you all about him right now on Historia Obscura. Welcome to Historia Obscura. This is the 88th episode of this podcast, and I can't wait for you to hear it. Special thank you to Patreon subscribers Barbara, Lisa Chase, and Tom. If you want to receive a shout-out in every episode, among other benefits, help support this podcast by going to patreon.com slash historiaobscura and becoming a patron. One more thing. Make sure to stick around for a little to hear a message about the sponsor of this episode of Historia Obscura, Spotify for Podcasters. If you want to make your own podcast, you'll want to know everything about how to use Spotify for Podcasters. Bernard Hugo Goetz was born in the Kew Gardens neighborhood of Queens, New York on November 7, 1947. Kew Gardens had experienced an influx of German immigrants following World War II, and as such, both of Goetz's parents had been born in Germany, with his father being Lutheran and his mother being Jewish. As a young child, Goetz moved with his family to a farm in upstate New York. Goetz later said about his childhood farm home, Quote, if you called the cops, maybe they showed up the next day. He also claimed to have owned his own gun by the age of nine. In 1960, when Getz was 12 years old, his father was arrested for molesting two teenage boys. To shield Getz and his younger sister from embarrassment, Getz's parents sent the two to boarding school in Switzerland, where Getz spent the remainder of his childhood. Returning to the U.S. after high school, Getz attended New York University, graduating in 1969 with a bachelor's degree in nuclear engineering and electrical engineering. After dodging the Vietnam War draft by pretending to be mentally ill, Getz followed his family to Orlando, Florida, and entered into an unhappy marriage that ended after three years. In 1975, Getz returned to New York before starting his own electronics business that he ran out of his Greenwich Village apartment. Getz had his first experience with the New York City subway crime in 1981 when he was robbed by three black teenagers at the Canal Street Station in Chinatown. The three robbers reportedly threw the 98-pound Getz through a glass window, bruising his ribs and permanently damaging the cartilage in his knee. To add insult to injury, after Getz fought back against one of his attackers, the two were detained by an NYPD officer, and the robber was released after three hours, while Getz was held for over six hours. It was after this incident that Getz applied for a concealed carry permit, which was denied. 
circumventing New York's laws, Getz traveled to Florida and purchased a five-shot revolver. The events of December 22nd, 1984 are widely disputed, with accounts changing greatly over the years, but I'll do my best to break what happened down as accurately as possible. Just after 1pm, four black teenagers, 19-year-old Barry Allen, 19-year-old Daryl Cabey, 19-year-old Troy Canty, and 18-year-old James Ramsur, boarded a number 2 express train going southbound from 242nd Street in the Bronx. The four friends, all high school dropouts from the Bronx, were surrounded by around 15 to 20 other passengers. Canty would later testify that the four each had a screwdriver as they were en route to Manhattan to rob an arcade. The subway reached the 14th Street station in Lower Manhattan after around 40 minutes, at which point Bernard Getz boarded the train carrying his electronic equipment and sat across from the four teenagers. Canty reportedly asked Getz how he was doing before standing up with Allen and approaching Getz. According to Canty, he then asked Getz, quote, Can I have $5? According to Getz, Canty actually said, quote, Give me $5. Getz also later stated, quote, When I saw the smile on his face and the shine in his eyes that he was enjoying this, I knew they were intending to play with me like a cat plays with a mouse. Getz claimed that the four men proceeded to reach into their pockets, at which point Getz pulled out the revolver he had previously bought in Florida and fired at the men. Each of the first four shots hit a different member of the group, while the fifth shot may or may not have been fired. Getz testified that he approached the incapacitated KB, said, quote, You seem to be doing alright, here's another, and fired the fifth round into KB's spine. After being approached by the conductor and refusing to hand over the revolver, Getz deboarded the stalled subway, ran down the tracks to the Chamber Street station, and took a taxi back to his home in Greenwich Village. He then rented a car and drove to Bennington, Vermont, where he disassembled his revolver and scattered the pieces in the snowy woods before burning his blood-stained clothes. He then drove back to New York before driving to Concord, New Hampshire. On December 30th, 1984, Getz walked into a police station in Concord and turned himself in. After spending five days in protective custody on Rikers Island, Bernard Getz posted a $50,000 bail on January 8th 1984. After the first grand jury decided to only charge Getz with criminal possession of a weapon, Troy Canty and James Ramsur were given legal immunity to testify before a second grand jury, which charged Getz with attempted murder, assault, reckless endangerment, and criminal possession of a weapon. When the case went to trial, Getz and his attorneys claimed self-defense. According to New York state law, an individual is allowed to use lethal force if they reasonably believe someone is committing or is attempting to commit a violent crime, including robbery. 
The defense also claimed that the four individuals who were shot had all been standing around Getz in a semicircle so as to block him from escaping, and that all of the shots had been fired in short succession, demonstrating that the shooting was a defensive act by a man who was being threatened. A police officer was also called as a witness, claiming that Canty had admitted to him at the scene that the group had planned to rob Getz. The prosecution disagreed, testifying that the men were merely panhandling to Getz rather than attempting to rob him. Medical examiner Charles Hirsch also testified that the bullets that hit Barry Allen and Daryl Cabey had entered their backs, seeming to suggest that the men were running away when they were shot. Special attention was also paid to Getz's initial confession that he had fired a fifth shot at the incapacitated Cabey. Although Getz had since retracted this claim, several eyewitnesses corroborated it, claiming that he had approached KB after three seconds and shot downward at him. Additionally, Getz's neighbor reported that, at a community meeting less than two years prior to the shooting, Getz had given an inflammatory speech in which he expressed a desire to clean up the street by getting rid of black and Hispanic residents using certain racial epithets to refer to both groups. This account was, however, excluded from the trial by the judge. The case was presented to a jury of Manhattan residents who were chosen to represent the borough's racial demographics while also taking the implications of New York City's high crime rate into account. With that in mind, 10 of the jurors were white and two were black, while six identified themselves as having been victims of street crime. On November 22nd, 1988, Bernard Getz was found not guilty of attempted murder, assault, and reckless endangerment, but was found guilty of criminal possession of a handgun. After being sentenced to six months in prison, five years probation, 200 hours community service, and a $5,000 fine, Getz appealed his sentence with the intention of making it longer. Because of the way parole works in New York, I don't totally get it and he was soon resentenced to a year in prison and a $5,000 fine. Getz was released early in September of 1989 for good behavior after serving eight months in prison. The four teenagers shot by Getz all took different paths after the incident. Barry Allen, who was shot in the back, was imprisoned in 1989 for robbing an elderly man of about $50. Daryl Cabey, whose spinal cord was severed in the shooting, is permanently paralyzed from the waist down, and as a result of brain damage, he was found in 1985 to have the mental capacity of an 8-year-old. Troy Canty, who was shot in the stomach, successfully entered a drug rehab program, taking vocational classes and even attending culinary school. James Ramsur, who was shot in the arm, was imprisoned in 1986 for raping a pregnant woman, before being released in 2010 and committing suicide by drug overdose in 2011 at the age of 45. As for Getz himself, he became a martyr to many anti-crime crusaders while becoming an enemy to civil rights activists. In 1996, the family of KB successfully sued Getz for $43 million in physical and emotional damages, prompting Getz to file for bankruptcy. In 2001, Getz ran for mayor of New York City on an independent platform of expanding vegetarian meals in prisons, schools, and hospitals, as well as banning infant circumcision. 
he placed eighth in the election. Getz was arrested in 2013 for selling marijuana to an undercover cop, but the charges were dropped after the prosecution waited too long to bring the case to trial. In light of the death of Jordan Neely, many have taken the opportunity to compare the situation to the Getz case. Civil rights activist and Reverend Al Sharpton, who will deliver Neely's eulogy next Friday, stated, quote, We cannot end up back to a place where vigilanteism is tolerable. It wasn't acceptable when I fought the Getz case 30 years ago, and it cannot be acceptable now. Getz himself, however, rejected the comparison of his own case to the contemporary incident. Perhaps reflecting the arguable deterioration of his mental state, Getz bizarrely quipped of the accused killer Daniel Penny, quote, I think Michael Jackson, tattoos, piercings, and cocaine all suck equally, but he killed Michael Jackson. He's gotta pay. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Historia Obscura. I certainly enjoyed writing it. If you want to suggest an episode of Historia Obscura, send me a voice message at podcasters.spotify.com slash pod slash show slash Historia Obscura slash message. Feel free to leave your name and location, and if I like your idea, I'll make an episode of it and give you credit. Additionally, if you want to support this podcast, go to patreon.com slash Historia Obscura and become a patron. And of course, I can't go without once again thanking this episode's sponsor, Spotify for Podcasters. They are by far the easiest way to make a podcast, so if you want to make your own, go to spotify.com slash podcasters. With that said, this is Jack from Historia Obscura, signing off, but not for long. (laughs) 